Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. I will keep this short and sweet. I hear a lot of stories about you, about what you're enjoying, what you're finding helpful on this podcast, and I love it, what the ministry of the Living Church means to you. So if you appreciate this podcast, if you read the magazine, if you browse our blog, if you benefit from the community and fellowship of our events, remember that TLC is also a 501c3. So you know what's coming. Would you add us to your giving budget this year? Go to livingchurch.org forward slash donate 2022 or click the link in the show notes. Thanks for your generosity. Enjoy the show. But for those of us who are Christians, it reminds us that we have a great story, a great hope, a great power beyond all power that sees us through this life right up until the end and into life yet to come. The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. We thought we would just take it over the top today with sound effect of a cat purring. Tea kettle, tea pouring into a cup, cat purring. What gets cozier than that? Welcome listeners to our Christmas chat episode of the Living Church podcast. This is our final episode of the year. We'll be taking a break for the holidays. We won't be back for a month, but until then, kick back with a hot cider and listen on. Father Mark Michael, he is our interim executive director and editor of the Living Church magazine. And he asked me if he could sit down with a good friend of TLC, the Reverend Dr. Russ Levinson Jr., to talk about Russ's new and intriguing book. What is it like to pastor a president? Russ Levinson has spent many years as rector of St. Martin's Episcopal Church in Houston, Texas. And among his many parishioners, he has had the fascinating opportunity of shepherding and observing the spiritual lives of fellow Episcopalians, former President George and Barbara Bush. His new book about it is called Witness to Dignity, The Life and Faith of George H.W. and Barbara Bush. Now, while religion and politics can get tied up in many unhelpful ways, 
And we would be hard-pressed to point to a set of genuine, bona fide, good old days. It is probably safe to say that learning from the strengths of the past and of a previous generation of leadership, as well as their weaknesses, is a worthy endeavor. Russ Levinson has been rector of St. Martin's for 15 years. He has served in many capacities in the Episcopal Church as pastor, council member, and a leader in global, charitable, and humanitarian organizations, including medical services and veterans care. St. Martin's also serves as a living church partner. How is a president also a local parishioner? You might be interested to know how former President George H.W. Bush made this work. And how does it work to be their pastor, even just practically speaking? How do you help a former president to age and die well? What might it mean for a world leader to also be an authentic person of faith? We'll hear many interesting stories today, but before I pass the mic to Mark, let me just add that a good sense of humor might not be the least of the impacts of faith on leadership. May all of our leaders have one of these. Comedian Dana Carvey developed a, let's say, famous impersonation of the former president. And what was President Bush's response to Dana Carvey's lampooning him on SNL and other national platforms? Take a look at the show notes today, not only to click the link to give to the Living Church, of course, but also to see the former president's answer to Dana Carvey's bit about him It is a pretty good response and one that is worth emulating. Now, whether you're in the Oval Office today or just in a normal square one, whether you're in a White House or a brick one, whether you are riding an Air Force One or just your same old Toyota Camry, we hope you enjoy the conversation. It's really a blessing to have you with us. Father Russ. Well, it's good to be with you, Mark. As you know, I'm a longtime reader of the Living Church and very much have appreciated having a relationship with the Living Church since I was, since before I was ordained. I go back wow. to uh, somebody with some measure of courage published a six part series I did before I went to seminary. So that goes oh my goodness. back wow. to the early 80s. So we were in on the ground floor of the Our writing career, but, writing uh, career. So. but since then, I've certainly come to appreciate not only what, what you do for the living church, but the work that it does. You know, I've always felt like the living church is so much more than just a publication. It is a kind of a cohesive adhesive for those mm-hmm. of us in the, in the church who want to know, not just what's going on, but, you know, read a variety of, of thoughts of people. And it tells the true story of, yeah. of what's going yeah. on in, in the church. And, you know, I've said this to you and I said it, Chris Wells, that I felt like, it, you know, that's the place I go to, to really read and understand what's happening in the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion. So, Well, that's our goal to speak the truth and to try to draw people together in as we seek the unity of the church. So yeah. I'm grateful for your support in that and for your kind words you know, another part of our of our ministry is really lifting up the work of parish clergy and trying right. to help them to be faithful in that vocation. And I really think that this book that you've written is a testimony to that, to your own experience in caring for two of your parishioners who happen to be kind of very important world leaders at the same time. Yeah, I, I'm curious, you just say a little bit about kind of how this book came to be and, and kind of how you sort of as their pastor, how you trace the the Christian faith of, of your former parishioners. 
how it was formed in them, how you saw it at work in their lives? So good question. I, I, the How it came to be could be a, a very long story. I'll make it very short. <laughs> so I, I, as I say early in the book, at some point after a year or two of our relationship with them, which spans 11 and a half years from 2007 mm-hmm. until their deaths four years ago, 2018, that I didn't know if they were going to be in church every week. You know, they're like yeah, any other Episcopalian. I didn't, I didn't know if they were, we would see them a lot or we would see them a little, but I quickly came to see that we would see them a lot. And if they were, if they were well, or they were not traveling, they were in church. They were in church every week. And, and if they weren't in church, they wanted church brought to them. Mm-hmm. And at some point, somebody said, are you writing these experiences down? And I really was not because I did not know the way I didn't know if I'd retire before, before they, you know, before I did their funerals or have my own funeral before them. So I never kind of thought, well, this is all headed toward a book, but after their deaths and after frankly, Mark receiving hundreds of letters and emails from around the country and the world. And I think this speaks to our Episcopal way of how people were touched by observing the services, observing Mm -hmm the traditional liturgy of the Episcopal Church that I thought that's a, that's a story right there, you know, and, you know, I have, and I've kept all those letters. There were very sweet letters. There was a letter from a, an Anglican priest in the Caribbean who said, I've just watched, this is Barbara's service. I can't go to, I couldn't go to bed without backing up and watching all of Barbara's service again. And this has renewed my faith. Another person saying, I, I thought about going to seminary. I gave up the idea. Now I'm in the process to go to seminary. I mean, those kinds of things. And I think that spoke, frankly, to our story of the Episcopal tradition, the Anglican tradition that we value. And then to see a story in which, frankly, not knowing until I got to know them better, that really, you know, he was baptized in, in our faith. Mm-hmm. She was baptized in our faith as well, but he was Episcopalian. She was Presbyterian. But it, God and church and faith meant something to them from their earliest years to their last years. And not every leader we've had <laughs> certainly has had that experience. And I think they faithfully lived that. And, and they are perfect examples. They were not perfect people. I don't want to try to tell that story, but I think they were perfect examples of what the epistles uh, call growing in grace. I think they understood grace and they grew in grace such that at the end of their lives, particularly in those last two years, what I witnessed, and that's part of the reason for the title, was was the two people who really grew in grace such that nothing really mattered more than what I call their three Fs of Mm -hmm. friends, family, and faith. And you didn't hear them talk about the old days in the White House or mm-hmm. the, 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 all the things they had done or you, you, they wanted to pray. They wanted to spend time with their friends and their family mm-hmm. and they wanted to die in the faith. In the faith. Yeah. And, and when, once all that was done, you know, now it was four years later and, the, and I wrote the children and asked their permission, got their support. And I think the, the book, as it's been coming together, I had several people read it for not for editing purposes. I didn't ask them to edit, but I asked them to give their opinion. And there's there are two or three pages in the front of the book where a wide variety of people endorse it from liberals to conservatives, centrists, 
we've had an actor, we have a singer, we have, you know, James A. Baker, we have Vice President Quayle, we have Joe Scarborough. I mean, we just a wide variety of people who say, you know, this is a story that needs to be told. And that's part of the story is these two people brought uh, very different kinds of people together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really it's a gift that the family was comfortable with you telling this story yeah, in some yeah. ways. I mean, it's I was trying to think if I've ever read anything quite like it before. Mm-hmm. I mean, a public figure like this and you had been with them through a lot of the really challenging times of the closing years of their life. Right. And uh, what a gift that you were able to open it up in that way and and talk about their faith, which was, you know, not li- not on their sleeve. These were yeah, not right, like, right. but there was a very deeply felt, sincere relationship with God that shaped their life and witness. So absolutely, absolutely, and it was it was palpable, and particularly in their deaths. You know, you and I both have been with lots of people who have died, and the and to me, those are always, almost always, without exception, in my case at least, have always been very holy moments. And these were not any more holy in a sense than the others. With the exception that when you see, bear witness to that kind of lifelong faithfulness, it it is inspiring, humbling. Being around them made me want to be a better Christian. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure I live my faith as faithfully as they have, you know, right. that is charitably as they're just really wonderful people. Yeah. One of the things that stood out to me in the way that you tell the story of their faith is how deeply they were connected to a particular parish. You know, mm-hmm. public figures travel mm-hmm. a lot. There's a lot of campaigning involved. And, mm-hmm. and but yeah, they were really deeply committed to St. Martin's. And you talk about them several times as embodying the St. Martin's way. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and how you see that reflected in them? Sure. I'll, I'll say, I think I mentioned this in the book. I, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time with it to the point to where now I'm forgetting <laughs> What was in it, but I, I mentioned I didn't know this until a few years ago. I was having a phone conversation with the first rector's son, first rector Tom Bagby, who's since gone to be with our Lord, of course. But his son is still around. I talked to him from time to time, and he said he remembers almost without fail, almost every Sunday afternoon while George Bush was in Washington as vice president, he would call home to talk to his first rector and say, how did church go today? Who was in church today? And he was asked about people. Now, Tom said that he did that once he was elected president. He, he didn't do that as frequently, but because his job took on a lot more, but yes, they were so committed to St. Martin's and it was, they always called it our home church. This is our home church. They visited other churches. And then of course, when they were in King Buckport, St. Anne's was their home church and they right, sure. much beloved there. And, and, and boy, I mean, there were times we joined them for church up there, and, and there were times when, as their guest, it was a cold, rainy, windy morning on the North Atlantic coast. They got up and went to church. You know, the, a lot of other people would get up and say, well, I'll read my Bible and drink a cup of coffee, but they were there. But I, I do think Saint, what I like to call the St. Martin's Way is a deeply rooted belief in the core principles of our gospel, that human beings are called into that relationship with Jesus Christ in a personal way. And once that transformation begins, you understand what Jesus meant when he said, we are to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and and body. 
and and love our neighbors ourselves. And so I, I think while we are a what a traditional historically Anglican Episcopal, and I would say in the best use of the word evangelical, the real expression of the Christian faith is should be like two blades of the scissors cutting through the darkness of the world. You can't have one without the other. And one is the faithful proclamation of the gospel, bringing people in relationship with Christ. But the the other is serving in his name, reaching out into the community, being an active force of change. And in those two blades coming together, I think are the St. Martin's way. And, and we've, I think, you know, I, I'm astounded again and again, we have a very wonderful, loving, hospitable parish and, and it's because of the people. Several times in the book, you have these moments where you say, I had to pinch myself and say, yeah. am I really here? You know, you're, right. you're sitting down having tacos with the former prime minister of the UK or, mm-hmm. or you're, you're, you're in some like big ceremony with, you know, ranks of, soldiers and musicians and mm-hmm. world leaders. And I think when you talk about that, you're gesturing towards something that a lot of us who are clergy have experienced, which is we sometimes feel anxious ministering to people who have a lot more power or wealth or standing than mm-hmm. we do. And I'm curious about kind of how you made peace with that as a pastor mm-hmm. and what advice you would give to other ministers who kind of struggle with, with what that what that means for them. Gosh, Mark, that's a great question. Yeah, I, th- I think I knew, uh, let me say, w- w- knowing that they were members of the church, I think I knew if I if I ever began or ever head down the road of, of treating them in a way that I did not treat every other parishioner, mm-hmm. then I was I was opening the door to all kinds of all kinds of demons that I didn't want to deal with. I mean, I, sure. you know, I fear, anxiety, worry. Am I making the right impression? Am I, uh, you know, am I, am I going to shake hands in a different way? Am I going to get rid of my old Alabama accent? Am I going to, whatever is, you know, and I, I, I think from day one, we just made a decision to, we're going to be, I'm talking about we, my wife and I, not the sure. royal we, but my yeah. wife and I, but we're going to be, involved we're going to be Russ and Laura Levinson. Yeah. And, you know, I, I tell a story early in the book where I was at home in Pensacola, Florida before we, after we had received the call and not come to Houston yet and seeing the phone ring, these are the days before cell phones. So before everybody had a cell phone and I saw on the light up, you know, office of George H.W. Bush. And I, and I thought, hmm, okay, well, all right. So I picked it up and they said, is this Russ? So, yep, hold for the president. And on he came. And I I just thanked him and he was very sweet. And he said, I just wanted to welcome you to the church. We're going to take care of you. We're glad you're coming, et cetera, et cetera. Hung up. And and somewhere along the line, Mark, he found out that that, that was back when we were back, what I would call back east, east of the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And um all of our family were there. You know, we really, frankly, were pretty happy where we were living in Pensacola, Florida. We had a lot of friends there and he got wind that we, we did, we felt uncomfortable leaving our four living parents there. Mm -hmm. And he sat down and wrote a personal letter to my parents, handwritten note to my parents, handwritten note to Laura's parents. When it was two more than a page Mm -hmm. about how happy they were, we were coming and that don't worry, they're going to treat us, they're going to take care of us and all that. And I think I say in the book, and they certainly did, but because they treated us that way, I knew from the beginning, 
we were entering a relationship with people that were real and, and honest. The world has good antenna. <laughs> the, the world's olfactory senses are, are wonderful and they can spot a fake from a mile away. So just being real and being honest about who, what God gave you, I think is important. And I think that helped, frankly, that helped the connection we had with the Bushes. I mean, right. once they could see me get tickled at myself or whatever, you know, yeah. once they spent time around my children that I had no control over, that was, it was a whole new world. So, yeah. Sure, sure. Hi, it's me again. I thought you might find this interesting. A donation of $250 to The Living Church pays for one whole week of podcast production. Yes, we are frugal here at The Living Church. We get a lot done on a little, but we still need your help. If you give between $50 and $250 to The Living Church before December 31st, tell you what, write to me at ambernoel at livingchurch.org, subject line podcast. And I will give you a special thank you for your donation between $50 and $250. And if you donate $250 or more, the cost of an episode, I will make you an episode sponsor. Hey, hey, write to me and tell me why you sponsored an episode and I'll read your email on air. We are grateful for you listening, giving if you can. Every budget counts. Even $5 is a blessing. The cost of that proverbial cup of hot chocolate bless you and help us to keep these conversations going. Another kind of pastoral care question. You became the Bush's pastor after the president had, you know, had stepped down from office. He, right. he was kind of out of the limelight at that point. But I'm just curious about your thoughts on when you're the person you're caring for as a pastor is in a significant position of authority you know, in the world has a significant role. What's it like to disciple a president? You know, do you, do you feel it's ever your role as a pastor to urge a particular issue or raise a concern? Or when we're dealing with that kind of a situation, should we just be sort of encouraging and comforting? Do you understand the question? I do. I do. I think it's safe to say he, he was friends to all my predecessors and and sought their counsel. But but I, I think he was very close to Billy Graham, as everybody mm-hmm. knows. They had a close relationship. But it, my, my three predecessors, he was close with all of them. But I think, I, I kind of hate to put it this way, but by the time I got to them, right. I think in their 80s, I think in many ways their faith was formed. So a lot of the questions that they had and there were questions mm-hmm. had to do, frankly, about end of life, had mm-hmm. to do about life after death, had to do about, you know, what, what do, and which is really one of the reasons I end the book with what do Christians believe about life after death? I kind of, mm-hmm. and that was, a, that was a later thought. I mean, that was after I'd basically finished the book. I thought, I'm, I need to kind of unpack this a little bit. But when they would ask those questions, it was like with this childlike honesty, you know, yeah. pre- the president saying, uh, what's heaven like? And I, I mentioned this in the funeral homily, but then saying, well, you know, how, how old will my daughter who died? How old will Robin be? You know? Mm-hmm. And I would have to say, what's well, sir, I don't know. You know, I, I know you're going to be reunited with her. That's, that's above my pay grade, but I know you'll be with her again. And then mm-hmm. later asking, cause Barbara predeceased him, but you know, saying now I, I'm going to see Barbara, right? Well, yes, sir. Absolutely. I don't know how, but you, you are. And then when Barbara, Barbara, I, was 
a believer for as long as I knew her and probably many years before and through her life, but then made this decision to be confirmed, you know, a few Mm -hmm. years before her death. And, you know, just looked right at me and said, you know, I do believe, right? I said, of course I know you believe. Do I, do I need to take a class? And I was like, well, no, I, I think you got it. I think there's some things I need you to, and we went through the service and the prayer sure. book. But again, you know, if they had sought counsel about something specific, I would ask. She, you know, I was asked by invitation of the president to, which was kind of a, again, one of those, what am I doing here moments? And I, I write about this briefly in the book. But Mitt Romney was coming to town and yeah. the president okay. called and said, do you want to come over and chat? Because I think Mitt's sure. thinking about running for president and he wants to know what an evangelical like you, I guess is what he was saying, would sure. think about a Mormon running for president. And so, you know, we had a great visit and Governor Romney, you know, wrote a sweet note afterwards. Of course, he didn't didn't win that one. But mm-hmm. but yeah, so I, th- I think he, he would from time to time ask those kinds of questions, but sure. not being in the meat of it, you know. Yeah. When he was in leadership, was a different thing. Sure, you've already spoken a little bit about accompanying the Bushes through that journey out of this world and into the next one. And I'm curious if you learned anything about the aging process or about preparing for death from that time that you spent with them, in, in you know, in such an intimate and and mm-hmm. continuous way. Yes, I think in some ways it was a reaffirmation again of what you and I do in this work, which is to comfort and be present, a ministry of presence. I saw an increased need and appreciation, perhaps in ways I have have not as much because the illnesses went on for about two years. They rarely came to church at the end. If they could, they were there. But um, Mm -hmm. so that meant sometimes weekly, sometimes twice a week trips to the house and the Eucharist right. took on a much deeper meaning for them. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we all, I always kidded with them. I said, now I have a long version of this I can do, or if there's a short version, the president would always say, well, let's just do the short version, <laughs> which we would, but you know, we would say the Lord's prayer and I would say the gifts of God for the people of God and give them the bread, give them the wine. And, and especially in that last year or so, you know, he more than she was usually in tears. I mean, he Mm -hmm. appreciated that intimacy that we have and receiving the sacraments in that way. And so that spoke to me of the importance of having that at the end of your life in preparation for the next. And then having, and I think this is, this is, these are discussions everybody should have. What are the measures that we will go to within the realm of our understanding about life and death and care of life. But but what are the decisions that we need to make prior to reaching the point of of death? Because I think they both, they, well, I don't think I know. And Barbara and I had a specific conversation about when she had, in April of 2018, and I had seen her at the hospital and um, she was okay. She was talking like you and I are talking. In fact, I, had, I, talk, I tell a little funny story about her trying to get me to fix something on her phone. You know, this is, and, and I thought, I don't, that's not my job. I, I don't need to be fiddling with your phone. And I still have the text that she sent me, the very last text she sent me. But she, it was in part at that visit. And then again, by the time she got home, she said, I, I really, I don't want to go back to the hospital. I don't want to keep fighting against what my body's telling me. Is it okay mm-hmm. to, to make that decision? And, and, 
she asked me that question and I said, Barbara, absolutely. It's okay. You know, if this were a hundred years ago, we wouldn't be having this conversation. You're, <laughs> you're here because of medical care. And so we can move in a godly way from mm -hmm. the medical care you're receiving to comfort care right. and be prepared for whenever the good word decides that's your last day. And, sure. but those are things we should be talking about with everybody. And, the, and the, right. those are important. You know, you know, I'm sure you've had this. I have, when we get to the hospital and nobody's talked about DNR or right. what, what's the, what's, what, is there a living will? Well, no, there's not a living will. I mean, all those decisions were made well before the end. And, and that made it all. And that, and frankly, that made it all much more beautiful because yeah, yeah. we weren't sitting here wrestling over those. We we're wrestling about, well, we're, just, we're wrestling now about having to say goodbye. Right. And the family, I mean, it was clearly communicated to the family. They Absolutely. Were yeah. yeah. That was, yeah, you, you tell that story. It's a very human story. I think many of us have been, at these kinds of situations in our pastoral care and our own families, but the way in which they made their decisions and they were clearly communicated was really a, they really set the table for the, the others to be present and to share right. their love at the end of life. It was right. a beautiful thing. So I know there was also a lot of planning involved in the, the funerals, the state funerals that yeah. you narrate in the book. A lot of, a lot of red ink applied to your, fun <laughs> your funeral homily drafts, mm -hmm. including by the former Secretary of State. Mm -hmm. And um, you also talk in that section a lot about the funeral liturgy itself, you know, the, the music that was chosen, the particular texts and the way they spoke to people. And I'm wondering, what is it about our funeral liturgy that is a particular gift in this time to people who are often just afraid to talk about death at all and who really have an anxiety about ceremony and all these kind of things? I mean, what is it that, what did you find that was a particular gift in the Book of Common Prayers funeral liturgy? I do as you as we all do in this work do lots of funerals i mean we uh, uh, at, at saint martin's as you know we have a large congregation and so we for instance this year we've already done we did 10 in august 10 in september wow. we're, we're on track to do similar number here in october when you and i are visiting but and and often if it's somebody from outside our way who comes to the church from another denomination and this happened just a few weeks ago, had service and lots of, and, you know, people come and say, that was the most beautiful service I've ever been to, you know, as if we just dreamt it all up, you know, in the hours before the service. And, and I often tell people, one of the gifts that we have is, is when you come into the Episcopal church, we've got a book and the, and the book is beautiful. And the anthems, the prayers all creeps out of our story, the Holy Scriptures, that promise us passing from life to life, strength to strength, and in the fellowship of the saints, all those things we believe. And so I love telling people in funeral homilies, and I know some Episcopal churches don't even do homilies anymore, but I, I love telling people in those homilies, affirming what has already been revealed in the liturgy up to the point of the homily, mm -hmm. which is we believe today that this person is not here, they're with our Lord. And mm -hmm. I don't usually go too deep into whatever that looks like, but I think it's a it's a very hopeful liturgy. It, it always has been. And in the end, I would say eight times out of 10, 
when we leave St. Martin's Church, most people choose joyful, joyful, we adore thee as the closing hymn. And I always tell people that's that's a wonderful way to leave a funeral service, not with a dirge, but with the hope and the promise. So, yeah. Easter joy. Yeah. Absolutely. The Easter message. You mentioned earlier the unique way that the Bushes brought together very different people, that they had this ability to kind of make friends of, of people across a wide spectrum. And one of the things I found really interesting is you were narrating your involvement in these funerals mm-hmm. are the ways that you had some really significant faith conversations with people who were helping out with it or who attended. Or I, I'm just curious if you could kind of tell a little bit of that story for those who haven't read the book yet, mm-hmm. and then just talk about how you find that these kinds of things offer opportunities for evangelism. Yeah, I think one of the things that I appreciated and it made my job easier, you know, was the the president and Barbara were pretty clear they wanted a traditional Episcopal service Mm -hmm. with traditional language. Now, I'm not not making a slam against people who are against. I'm just saying this is what I was asked to do. And uh, although that is our tradition at St. Martin, our principal services are all right one, which people some people find hard to believe, but it draws lots of people in. And so I think I was concerned as we began to reach out to all the other people that were going to be involved. How would other people receive that? We were going to have to work very closely with the National Cathedral on the on the state funeral. And Randy Howarth at the time as the dean was very supportive, could not have been more supportive and welcoming of any and everything that we wanted to do. Because I think he and I both knew we were working toward a more important goal, which was to lift up the life of this person, lift up his faith, and in the meantime, show people what we can do in the Episcopal Church. So, so that was, so there was never any, are we not going to use this version or this, that just, what do you want? But I do think the service speaks clearly to itself. And so over our years here, the president and Barbara, probably more Barbara than the president, was was always kind of pushing the rector to be as um, broad in our reach into the community as we possibly could. So we hosted mm-hmm. several interfaith services um, and we were always in commu- communication with those other kinds of communities. And, I, you know, and sometimes, frankly, Mark, I got criticism for that from, from progressives and from conservatives. I would have conservatives mm-hmm. say, you know, you're you're welcoming Muslims and Jews and Sikhs and Buddhists into our church. And what are you doing to evangelize them while they're here? I said, well, they're in a church and they're they're standing in by in you know in a church that has a cross, and we're not t- right. taking the cross down, and we're singing hymns that you know bespeak of our faith, and they're here to pray with us. And 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 then I would have progressives saying, I you know didn't go far enough or whatever. Mm-hmm. So you know, I I, I feel like. I do, again, to speak to our liturgy, I think our liturgy tells a great story and it offers, as you and I know, it offers promises that some in other faith traditions don't get offered. Uh, again, you and I believe firmly in, in grace and the love of God and 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 our, we're reminded in these liturgies of, of God's love for his children and not that at the end, it, what happens at the end doesn't depend on me, it depends on God. You know? mm-hmm. I guess in some ways the the, lit- the liturgy's confidence about these things right Absolutely. kind of invites other people to ponder so what is that going to mean for me you know yeah. what, what is and it's a blessing that 
we're able to offer it some, you know, in these kind of high profile ways yeah. as a gift to the wider, to the wider world, the wider church. Yeah. And I, I do think, as I said, these hundreds of letters I got from all, yeah. you know, some from even people who were honest enough to say, you know, I haven't been to church in years, but I, I flipped that on and, and I've, I've, I've decided I'm going to go back to church Sunday you know, just from watching the liturgy, you know, watching this service. Didn't have anything to do. I mean, it did because it was the bushes. It was their service. But said, I'm going back to church because of what I just watched in that worship service. You know, what a blessing. One of the things that you said in your homily at President Bush's state funeral was that it was as if we were honoring the last of his era, and yeah. and this is also something that people were saying last month as we as we mourn the death of Queen Elizabeth and we will not see her like again. I don't want to get too political here, but yeah. I, I, what do you think that the president's approach to statesmanship, his, his sense of dignity, as you refer to it several times, what do you think that can teach our country in a time of such partisanship, bitterness, division? Uh-huh. Well, I, I'm, I'll, I'll say unapologetically that I I wish we had a George H. W. Bush rising to the top of the cream <laughs> today in our world. Um, you know, again, as I said, I know he wasn't perfect, but search his speeches, watch his speeches listen to things that she said, you know, they, they had a, a, she perhaps more than he at times had a, could, could have kind of a, a interesting sense of humor that, but kindness and gentility and character and dignity were just infused in those things. And you, you never saw, you know, there could be differences of opinion, but there was something about that era that and and I I'm not as you said this isn't a political statement this is just my experience of being around them and and, and Barbara and George but also Secretary James Baker who's mm-hmm. a very active member of the, he's still a very active member of the church speaks very openly about his faith Secretary Baker tells a story of the day President Reagan was shot so we'll go back to those and and uh, I'm probably older than you on this point but Tip O'Neill was Speaker of the House and mm-hmm. it was very fervent Democrat okay. and, and Secretary Baker talks about coming up into the hospital room and nobody was with, sitting with President Reagan at that moment. I'm sure this was an unusual moment, but Tip O'Neill was, and he was holding Ronald Reagan's hands and crying and saying, Mr. President, Mr. President, Mr. President. And you know, here are people diametrically opposed politically, but they were together. And I, I think so. And, I think George Bush, even more so when he said kinder, gentler, I think he meant it. Mm-hmm. And I think somehow, Mark, and, uh, you know, I think you and I as clergy are really wrestling with this. I heard a great talk by John Meacham a few months ago where he spoke about the fact that you, you, you cannot, without mentioning names, you cannot really blame the people who are in office for what's going on now because everybody knows who they are. Social media will not allow you to have a private life anymore. So you no know secrets that. are hidden. No secrets are hidden. He said, but but we do have to ask what we are incentivizing now. Right. And if we are incentivizing things like obscenity, vulgarity, rudeness, division, hatred, violence, whatever it is, no on either side, then then 
not only are we going to bear the brunt of that ourselves, but for you and me, that's certainly not what we should be endorsing or supporting. And so, and so John kind of ended this talk by saying, and you know whose job it is to change what we incentivize. And he looked out at this, it was a group of clergy. He said, it's your job to lift up what is godly right. And so when I speak about that in the book, I do say we all sensed in his passing, as we did a few weeks ago, a sense of nostalgia. Look at the way things all used to be. And they and there, I mean, you can study it. These this that was a time of, of peaceful leadership in our nation. And I think I said in the funeral that there were no lines in the cement for the president. They were in the sand and they, and he would brush them away if there was a greater good. But but nostalgia can also do something else. It can wake you up to, to say, I want that again. I want good, solid, godly leadership that understands what's most important is, is not my party and not my position, not my power, not my reputation. It is the greater good of those I serve. And I think that's, I think the president modeled that to the very end. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think yeah. that's very wise. So we need to pray for that. Absolutely. <laughs> we, pray. Absolutely. I, uh, we had Max Lucado in a few weeks ago and uh, Max told the story, the old story, I'm sure every preacher has used it, but it's still good to hear those old stories about the guy who's praying for revival and he's in his, Hey, my nation needs a revival. And he's inside his house and he gets up off his knees, goes outside, draws a big circle in his yard. And he says, I, I am praying for revival and let it begin with everyone standing in this circle and, you know, start, start with the person in the mirror and then pray our, pray our way that. outside. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much for us. This has just been wonderful conversation. Is there anything else you'd like to add about the book or your, your hopes for? Yeah. Those who I, read it? Well, thank you. It, it is. I want to say what I began with, which it's a book about them. Mm -hmm. I, I, I struggled with putting myself into the picture, but again, with kind of the encouragement, particularly of Jeb Bush he said, you can't tell the story without putting yourself in the picture. So that's when I came up with the title. So I, I am just, I'm in the witness box You're the witness, and I'm telling the story uh, and I, so I hope people understand while I'm, yeah, I'm in there a lot, but it's things I observe. And the, and the hope is it, it honors them. It honors their faith. It lifts up the qualities that every human being, whether they're Christian or not, should certainly seek to emulate and support. But for those of us who are Christians, it reminds us that we have a great story, a great hope a great power beyond all power that sees us through this life right up until the end and into life yet to come. And I saw that visibly, personally, in the way in which they lived out their lives in our 11 and a half year relationship, sat with them at their deaths, and then watched the world, frankly, celebrate oh, their, their legacy. Celebrate, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Russ. The book is A Witness to Dignity, The Life and Faith of George H.W. and Barbara Bush. Now, do take and read and grow in your understanding and appreciation for the witness of this, these leaders. God bless and thank you for joining us for the Living Church Podcast today. Thanks once again for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute, and thanks for being a listener during 2022. We'll catch you back here in 2023 with an Anglican Episcopal panel on cutting-edge missional ministry. 
a conversation on pickleball, jazz, and parish life, and a dive into African-American Anglicanism. Until then, I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it's been good to be with you. Peace. Peace.